Thank you, Hadley, and the worship team for leading us those songs. It's my privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Pastor Bart is not with us this morning. He is uh, in Brazil. This is a monumental occasion in Chiago's life and ministry. Uh, This is uh, the 20th anniversary of Chiago being in uh, pastoral ministry. And so his flock in Brazil that uh, he has the privilege of shepherding wanted to celebrate him and commemorate 20 years of faithfulness in ministry. And there were two men that Chiago wanted to come down and spend time with and commemorate this milestone and also preach. And that would be uh, Pastor Rick Gertzen and Bart Horton. So Rick and Bart are both down in Brazil uh, celebrating Chiago and encouraging Chiago. So Bart will be back with us next Sunday, preaching back in Colossians. But for this morning, we return to our study of Revelation. We'll be doing the entirety of chapter 14 this morning, all 20 verses. I'll try not to overwhelm you. Uh, I, it is not my preference to do the whole chapter all at once, but I didn't know when we'd be able to look at the next passage together, and the chapter is its own unit, and it actually closes a unit of chapters 12 through 14, so I felt it was more appropriate, given the options, to try to tackle it all in one fell swoop. The title of the message for this morning is Harvest Time, and this time of year, most of the fall harvest is done, especially with the changing of the seasons and the onset of the frost. Almost every farmer I talk to is done with this round of harvesting, and they're making preparations. Preparations are underway for next year. This is a period of maintenance on the farm where equipment is tended to and uh, new crops, the groundwork is laid for new crops to be uh, harvested next year. There's an air of finality to this time of year. It's the close of one chapter, the beginning of another. That's what harvest time is. And there's a familiar rhythm for us with this on an annual basis. The seasons come, the seasons go, crops are planted, crops grow, crops are harvested, the cycle continues. But this harvest that we're going to look at this morning is the final harvest, the last harvest. And you might think, aren't we a little early in the book of Revelation to be looking at the final harvest? Well, we'll explain that in just a minute, what chapters 12 through 14 represent But yes, this is an examination of the final harvest, and it it poses for you and me a question of what harvest are you going to be a part of? Where will you be when all is said and done and everything is gathered in, the wheat into the barn and the tares into the fire? Where will you be? It is easy to get distracted. It is easy to get distracted by things like football games, by the change of the seasons, by stuff with your kids, by Christmas time, Thanksgiving, family trips, Christmas concerts, on and on and on. And these are all good things. I'm not bashing any one of these things in particular. But it's easy to get distracted. Friends, every single one of us is going to be one place or another. Every person in this room will either be gathered into the harvest of the wheat with Christ and those who belong to Christ for all eternity, or you will be cast out into utter darkness where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, 
and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever and ever for all of those who remain in opposition against God. It's harvest time. Where will you be? This may sound repetitive and even redundant for those of you who've been with us for some time, but we're going to briefly review the background information for the book of Revelation. The last time we were in Revelation was June, June when we looked at chapter 13. So this may be very familiar for some of you. Maybe some of you have forgotten. Maybe some of you are new to our church and you're not familiar with our iterative study in Revelation. Uh, But just briefly, the background info of this book, it was written by the Apostle John in AD 95 on the island of Patmos. John was not on a vacation on the island of Patmos. He was a prisoner, a prisoner of Rome, experiencing persecution because of his loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 1, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The book of Revelation was written during the first wave of empire-wide persecution in the Roman Empire. Beginning from the birth of the early church, to be a Christian meant that you were potentially signing up for persecution. Everybody who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ knew that to do so, you were risking being ostracized from society at the very least, potentially the loss of your property, the loss of your economic freedom, the loss of your political freedom. You could lose family members, you could lose your job, lose your business, lose your home, potentially even lose your family and lose your life. It wasn't like that every single day for the first 300 years of being a Christian, but the risk of that hung over every Christian's head. And there were certain time periods throughout the first 300 years of Christianity where persecution was particularly intense. There were 10 waves of Roman Empire-wide persecution. The first wave came under Emperor Diocletian during the writing of the book of Revelation. John was suffering because of Diocletian's tyrannical persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. John wasn't the only one. Christians everywhere throughout the Roman Empire were tasting persecution, experiencing the cost of following Christ. Suffering for Christ is not new. And perhaps some of you are experiencing a cost for suffering for Christ. Maybe you are ostracized by your friends at school. Maybe your college classmates think you're too weird. You're too much of a fundamentalist, narrow-minded. You hold to that outdated book. Maybe your family holds you at arm's length. You don't get invited to every family event. Thanksgivings and Christmas is not something you look forward to, but it actually represents seasons of apprehension because you don't like the awkwardness, because you love the Savior, and you know that people who you're related to by blood hate your Savior. John was written, excuse me, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Revelation to encourage you. Revelation was written to encourage the New Testament church who was already facing persecution at the hands of Rome because of their faithfulness of Christ. We see an example of this in Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Jesus says to Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's not just for Smyrna. That's for every Christian throughout church history. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Each one of those seven letters is applicable not just to the church that it was originally given to, but to all of us, because each one says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, this book encourages these believers In a specific way, it shows us that we've already won. 
Revelation encourages believers by revealing God's complete sovereignty over future events, peoples, and Satan. It's almost redundant and almost meaningless now to say that we live in uncertain times. We've been living in uncertain times for like two decades now. It's been uncertain times since 9-11. And sometimes feel more uncertain than others. I think the present would probably qualify as one of those uncertain times. We can't trust our political leadership here domestically. And the world seems poised on the edge of absolute military chaos. People are suffering. People are dying. And nobody's quite sure who's at the helm from a human perspective. But God rules and reigns. First John reminds us that this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's true. Satan is the prince of the power of the air at work amongst the sons of disobedience. The book of Daniel shows us that he has demonic agents at play behind human civil governments. If that sounds crazy, please join us next summer when we go through the book of Daniel in Grace Life class, and we'll talk about that. The evil one works behind the scenes, sovereignly superintending human events. He does this because God allows him to. As Calvin said, the devil is like a dog on a chain. He goes as far as God allows him to go. But he does operate. And yet behind all of that, Jesus Christ stands victorious. In this book, Revelation, we see God's future plans for the culmination of this present stage of world history, at the end of which he will judge the wicked and rescue his own. Following a seven-year period of divine judgment known as the tribulation, or Daniel 9 refers it to as the 70th week, Daniel's 70th week, or you could look at it as two halves of a time, times, and half a time, uh, or, you know, 42 months and 42 months. Either way you slice it, it's a period of seven years period of seven years. Following that period of tribulation, a literal 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, described clearly in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus reigns on earth for a 1,000 years, will commence, and that will conclude with the final defeat of Satan, the absolute final defeat of Satan, and the rebellion of Gog and Magog, and the commencing of the eternal state, in which believers will enjoy pure fellowship with God forever and ever. You know, so often throughout the Scripture, it says, you cannot see my face and live. God says to people, you cannot see my face. You cannot look upon the face of God. In 1 Timothy, Paul describes God as one as invisible, whom no one has ever seen. John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. But by the time we get to Revelation 22, what does it say? They will see his face. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. Revelation shows us, this is your future. Take heart. Take heart. The purpose statement is in the very first few verses of the book. The revelation, the unveiling, the revealing. That's apocalyptic in Greek. It means to unpocket something, to un unveil it, to reveal it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. These events could commence at any minute. There's nothing left that needs to take place for these events to begin. The time is near. The structure of the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus says to John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things you have seen refers to John's vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things that are, are the, as of John's day, 
present spiritual condition of the seven churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor, and that's covered in chapters 2 through 3. And then we come to, beginning in chapter 4, going all the way to chapter 22, those that are to take place after this. This begins in heaven's throne room in chapters 4 through 5. In the throne room, we see God the Father sitting on the throne. There is a scroll that represents authority over all of the cosmos that nobody is able to open. It's sealed with seven wax seals. No one is able to open it. John weeps because it seems like the universe is spinning out of control. No one can take this scroll that represents authority until the one who is the lion and the lamb comes and takes the scroll. And beginning in chapter 6, the lion and the lamb, the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, was di- who died and was raised, the one who bought a people for God, and thus he is the only one with the sole right and authority to open the scroll. He opens the scroll seal after seal after seal, and with each broken seal, a judgment is unleashed upon the earth. These seal judgments are the first part of the tribulation, and they culminate in the seventh seal judgment. The seventh seal judgment demonstrates God's power to save, and it also ushers in the seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet judgments, six horrifying trumpet judgments that are brought about by the seventh seal, followed by an interlude in chapters 10 and 11 that demonstrate God's sovereignty. And then chapter 11 brings us to the seventh trumpet. Read with me chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Stop there. One thing I want you to remember, chapter divisions did not exist when John wrote Revelation. Every thought flows into the next thought. See, the seventh trumpet ushers in another vision. The seventh trumpet is a declaration of God's sovereignty. That no matter how much evil grows in this world, look at verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See, chapters 12 through 14 are a vision within a vision that depict for us an abridged recounting of the history of spiritual warfare. I want you to understand, chapters 12 through 14 are its own unit, but it's an explanation It's an explanation of this declaration here that we find at the end of chapter 11. Exactly how does Jesus take authority? Exactly how does Jesus begin to reign? We see that in chapters 12 through 14. John is shown how does the lamb take authority. In chapter 12, we see the dragon. Chapter 12, we see the machinations of Satan throughout world history to challenge God And in challenging God, he attacks God's people because ultimately he's trying to destroy God's Messiah. Satan hates God. He wants to be God. He wants to be greater than God. And for that pride, Isaiah 14 shows us he was kicked out of heaven. 
He was kicked out of heaven, and he became the evil one. And ever since then, he's been waging a campaign to challenge God's authority and to replace God. He hates God. He hates God's agenda of righteousness. He hates God's people. So he hates both Israel, and he hates the church, and he hates God's Messiah. Many times throughout Old Testament history, you see Satan attempting to corrupt, pervert, or destroy the line of the Messiah. Corrupt, pervert, or destroy the line of the Messiah. His rage against God, Satan attacks the people of God, Israel, all in an attempt to destroy the Messianic line. But in all his attempts, he is thwarted. As Revelation 12 shows us that this wicked dragon, Satan, nonetheless is undeterred in his determination to attack God, God's people, and God's Messiah. And so that brings us to chapter 13. You see, Satan has a lieutenant, and this is the culmination of all his plans throughout human history, up until the tribulation, to attack God. He raises up a worldwide human political leader. His plan is to have a false Messiah. If Satan can't destroy the line of the true Messiah, if Satan can't even get Jesus to commit sin, whether in the wilderness or tempt him even in the garden from denying the mission that God had sent him on, then Satan will try to establish a false Messiah to lead the entire world astray. And that's what we see in chapter 13. All of Satan's plans come to a culmination during the time of the tribulation when he raises up a human political leader referred to here as the beast. Beast coming out of the sea, Revelation 13, 1, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This is a false messiah. We know him as the Antichrist. First John calls him the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians calls him the man of lawlessness. Daniel 9 refers to him as the prince who is to come. Here in Revelation 13, he is called the beast. He is a human ruler, an evil man, empowered by the devil himself. He obtains dominion over the entire planet, ruling politically. And by the midpoint of the tribulation, not only does he have uncontested political rule over all the tribulation, but also he is the center of a personality cult in which the peoples of this earth are demanded to worship him. He is not just a political ruler, he is a religious figure receiving worship. Revelation 13, second half of the chapter, shows us that this first beast, the one who comes out of the sea, is aided by a second beast who comes out of the earth, who has two horns like a, horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This is what is called the false prophet, another human wicked man empowered by Satan to lead people astray and to compel human beings across the planet, either by force or by deception, to declare loyalty to the Antichrist and ultimately to Satan. They do so, the peoples of this earth do so, declare that loyalty by taking a mark on their forehead or on their right hand. I know that's a very short summary of chapters 12 and 13. But by the time we get to chapter 13, things look bleak. Look at verse 15. And it, the false prophet, 
This is 1315. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. If you remember, we covered this back in June when we looked at Revelation 13. But suffice it to say, by the time we get to the end of chapter 13, things are dark. Things are bleak. It's full of persecution and pain, blasphemy, evil, wickedness, and certain death for those who would attempt to be loyal to Christ. And it looks dark, but then we see God's response. Chapter 14 shows us what does God do in response to the evil dragon of chapter 12 and the wicked human beasts of chapter 13? How does God handle the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet? What does God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit do in response to this campaign of evil? Chapter 14 shows us that God enacts his holy and horrifying harvest of mankind. In triumph, in victory, and in uncontested authority, God enacts his holy and horrifying harvest of mankind. Chapter 14 shows us future events that are so certain they are spoken of in the past tense. This is called proleptic, proleptic. We see this terminology used in Romans 8, where Paul describes the salvation process. Those whom God foreknew, he also called. Those whom he called, he also uh, justified, those whom he justified, he also sanctified, those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. Paul speaks of our glorification, something that hasn't happened yet, in the past tense, because it's so sure and certain. Theologians call that the proleptic tense. Thomas says, chapter 14, Dr. Thomas says, the whole of chapter 14 is proleptic. The first five verses feature the lamb in place of the beast, the lamb's followers with his and the father's seal in place of the beast followers with the mark of the beast, and the divinely controlled Mount Zion in place of the pagan-controlled earth. You know, Satan has attempted to set up his false messiah with false worship of an evil messiah. Chapter 14 shows us, except no counterfeits, Christ will rule and reign. Thomas continues, the remainder of the chapter furnishes a proleptic outline of the catastrophes and the bliss that receives a chronological and more detailed treatment in chapter 16 through chapter 22. In this fashion, the chapter is sort of an intermezzo to provide encouragement by telling the ultimate triumph for those who refuse the beast's mark and to predict the doom of those who do receive it. I'm going to read the chapter and then we're going to dive into our outline for this morning. Revelation 14, 1 through 20. Then I looked... Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song that except no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no life found, for they are blameless. 
Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Verse 14, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. In this chapter, we see the final holy and horrifying harvest of all humanity. And from this chapter, I believe the Lord wants us to have three reactions. Three reactions you must have in response to God's harvest of all mankind. Three reactions you must have in response to God's harvest of all mankind. The first is this, be encouraged. Say, be encouraged. Yes, be encouraged by the victorious harvest of holy witnesses. Be encouraged by the victorious harvest of holy witnesses. In this first chapter, 1 through 5, we see that even in the face of evil, even in the face of the Antichrist and the false prophet and worldwide persecution, where people have a choice of either join allegiance to Antichrist or die, Jesus stands undefeated. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. I hope you read the Psalms. I hope you are a frequent reader of the Psalms. This chapter, by the way, chapter 14, Revelation, I lost track after I got 20, 20 different allusions to other scriptures outside of the book of Revelation alone. There's a lot of intertextual, intertextual references to other passages in the book of Revelation, but to the other 65 books, there's at least 20, if not more, and this is a clear one, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain 
thing? How does God respond to the raging of the nations? How has he responded since the nations raged against him at the Tower of Babel? How has he responded? Or even before that, when the pre-flood nations raged against him in their sin and their wickedness and their perversion before the flood, how has he responded? He's responded by laughing at them. Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Revelation 14 is the culmination of what is described in Psalm 2. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can't win against God. His king is undefeated. For thousands of years, Peoples, individuals, and nations have raged against God, and none of them have won or ever will win. In one sense, friends, it does not matter what goes on in the Middle East right now. It does not matter what goes on in Washington, D.C. next fall. It doesn't matter. It matters. But 100 years from now, when we're all dead, it doesn't matter. Christ is and will be victorious. I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is the triumph of the Messiah. The triumph of the Messiah. He's a prophesied Lamb, described in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a sheep that is before it shares is silent, so he opened on his mouth. He's a sacrificial Lamb. John 1, 29. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I cannot wait for Pastor Bart to preach through the book of Hebrews for us because one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is the once and for all final sacrifice. He's a prophesied lamb. He's a sacrificial lamb. And in Revelation 5, verse 6, we see he is a triumphant lamb. No one could take the scroll. No one could until Revelation 5, 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he is the one who takes the scroll a prophesied lamb, a sacrificial lamb, a triumphant lamb. And he's not alone. He's accompanied by the 144,000 witnesses. These are the same individuals that we met in chapter 7. They are literally 144,000 human male Jews. There is no reason to take them as anything but that. We don't have time, but you can look at Revelation 7, verses 3 through 8. 12,000 from every tribe minus the tribe of Dan. If you remember the history of Israel, there were actually 13 tribes. The tribe of Joseph was split into Ephraim and Manasseh. The tribe of Levi was given a special status in which they did not have their own tribal inheritance in one specific spot, but they were scattered among the other tribes, and they served as a kind of Old Testament pastor. Their function as Levites was to remind the people of their covenant relationship with God throughout all of the other tribes. In the book of Judges, we see that the tribe of Dan failed to take the property that was assigned to them. If Dan had succeeded in taking the property that was assigned to them, do you know what property that was? The area of Israel that it was? Philistia. You know, what's Philistia? Modern-day Gaza. This is an interesting connection. But it was too hard for Dan. It was too hard for the tribe of Dan. 
It was too difficult to challenge the Philistines or the people living in the area of Philistia. So they went to a completely different region in the north that they hadn't been assigned, and they took that as their tribal inheritance. And consequently, they are omitted from the list of tribes in Revelation 7. Twelve tribes, Levi, Ephraim, Manasseh, and the other of the tribes minus the tribe of Dan, 12,000 men exactly from each tribe serve as God's witnesses during the time period of tribulation. These are Jewish men bought by the blood of Christ. Now, there might be some confusion as to how we understand those of us who hold to a future for national ethnic Israel as to how they're saved. I want to be very clear on this. Somebody is not saved simply because they're Jewish. There are Jews who die and go to hell. Sigmund Freud was a Jew who died and went to hell. He died in opposition against God. As far as I know, Albert Einstein did not come to a saving faith in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish individual who died and went to hell. We could come up with a whole list of people who died in opposition to Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Jews are not saved just because of their ethnicity. No, any person, every person who is saved is saved regardless of their ethnicity, Jew or Gentile. They're saved because they have been, as this text says, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed from the earth. It says there in verse 3, the 144,000. Any person who is part of the family of God is only part of the family of God because they have turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. These 144,000 Jewish individuals are witnesses during a time of tribulation. During the time of the tribulation, they testify that God is the true and rightful king over all the earth. And they are met, some of them, many of them, with martyrdom. They are sealed They are sealed, but as Dr. Thomas points out, he says the sealing they receive protects them only from the wrath of God, not from the wrath of the dragon and the beast. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. He wages war on them. These are the same 144,000 as in chapter 7, and they are also the same as the rest of the woman's seed in chapter 12, verse 17. The witnesses to whom the dragon has access through the beast and who will experience martyrdom because of their refusal to worship the beast. They are the vanguard of those who bear the brunt of the struggle against the beasts, and they pay the price of their own lives. They enjoy a special bliss because they face martyrdom bravely in anticipation of their ultimate triumph, which is pictured here. 144,000 individuals we met in chapter 7, they are sealed. They are sealed with the name of Christ and his Father's name. It's written on their foreheads. You might remember, if you've read through Ezekiel, that at the time that Babylon sacked Jerusalem, God sent an angel through Jerusalem, and Ezekiel the prophet could see this. We don't know if any other human was able to see this, but Ezekiel was able to see this. An angel going through the city of Jerusalem, marking those whom God had chosen to spare from destruction in Ezekiel 9, verses 3 through 4. In an echo of that same protection that we saw in 586 B.C. when Babylon sacked Jerusalem, so too here these 144,000 are protected by God's sealing. By God's sealing. This is the triumph of the Messiah. Next, we see the authority of the Father. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder. This voice is reminiscent of the voice of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 15, his feet were like burnished, burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. But this voice is not coming from the Lamb. It's coming from heaven. Just as many times throughout the ministry of Christ, God spoke from heaven, so too here, God speaks with authority, and his voice is like the roar of many waters. That is comforting. 
in the midst of evil, not only does the lamb triumph, but God speaks. Third, we hear the worship of the righteous. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3, and they, now we move from the singular to the plural, and they, this would be the harpists who we met earlier in Revelation 5, 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, all were holding a harp. The harpists were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Heaven's throne room, the four living creatures that we met earlier in chapters 4 and 5 and the 24 elders that we met in chapters 4 and 5 are still worshiping God. So again, friends, why be encouraged? In the midst of evil, in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of perversion, in the midst of persecution, Christ stands victorious. God speaks with authority. And the praise from heaven's throne room sounds out clear and loud. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now we're back to these witnesses. This is the fourth thing to be encouraged by. The purity of the witnesses. The purity of the witnesses. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, verses 4 and 5. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as a first fruits for God and the Lamb. And now we're back to harvesting terminology. You see, these men who'd serve as human witnesses to the authority and uncontested sovereignty of God throughout the tribulation are just like you and me. First fruits. Bought with a price. James 1.18 describes you and I the same way. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. These individuals are specifically committed to the service of God. They maintain holy lives, not because of a sense of legalism, but because they've been changed and transformed from the inside out. They have been redeemed, bought back, bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a kind of first fruits, verse 5, and in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. There's no lie found in their mouth, because just as their Savior was a man of integrity, 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So too are these witnesses who are loyal to their Savior, people of integrity as well. And they're blameless, because God has made them blameless. Jude 24 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The very existence of Christ standing on Mount Zion in the face of this worldwide campaign of evil and the existence of these 144,000 witnesses who testify that God is king and the cry of the throne room of heaven, worshiping God, all of this, all of this encourages you and me that it does not matter how evil things get in this world. God's agenda will proceed unthwarted. It does not matter how evil things get in this world. Be encouraged by the victorious harvest, but now be mindful of the divided harvest. Be mindful of the divided harvest resulting in two destinies. There is the barn with the wheat, and there is the fire with the tares. Let's look at verses 6 through 13. 
Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We see our first subpoint: you must consider the gospel call goes to all. Three things I want you to consider as we look at this paragraph. First is the gospel call goes to all, verses six and seven. Just as John heard an eagle in chapter eight saying this, Revelation 8, 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So too now John hears an angel flying in heaven, not proclaiming woe, but perhaps for the final time, for the last time, proclaiming the gospel. An angel with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. God is a wrathful God. He is a holy God. And in the face of sin, the only natural response from God is wrath. But he's also a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's a God who delights in salvation. He's a God who loves to save. He's the God who invented forgiveness. He invented saving love. And he doesn't stop being a God of forgiveness even here in the tribulation. He sends an angel, perhaps for the last time, to preach the gospel to every single person dwelling on planet Earth at that time. It's an eternal gospel. It's the same gospel that's been around from the garden. Cast yourself on God. You cannot cover your own sin and shame, Adam and Eve. No matter how many fig leaves you sow together, you cannot cover your own sin. You need the blood of another. You need the sacrifice of another. You need God to send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent all the way from Genesis 3.15 to here now in the time of the tribulation. This is the eternal gospel, the good news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What is the gospel? There is not a more important question that you can ask and answer. Do you know the gospel? We have a definition of it right here. Verse 6, preaching an eternal gospel. And what did he say? What is the eternal gospel? Verse 7, look at it, guys. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The gospel does not begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God does love you and he's also angry with you if you are still in your sin. So the message to you is turn while there is time. Here's the gospel. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. That is the gospel. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him who made heaven and earth. This is the attitude that all people are to have towards God, else they perish forever in their sin. To fear God means that you treat him accordingly. He is God and you are not. You don't negotiate with God. You don't bargain with God. You don't reason with God and get him to meet you halfway. To fear God means you come to him and you bow the knee and you say, you are God and I'm not. Do with me what you will. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Save me, change me, transform me, redeem me. 
That's what it means to fear God. You cast yourself completely, entirely on him and his mercy. And I promise you, not based on my own wisdom, but on the authority of the word of God, you will find him to be a God of mercy. Fear God. Treat him as he is. Give him glory is the next part. What does it mean to give God glory? This is the same counsel that Joshua gave Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Let me tell you what this is. This is, as Thomas says, this is an idiomatic expression for true repentance. An idiomatic expression for true repentance. To give God glory means you hold no glory back for yourself. To give God glory means you hold no glory back for yourself. You're either a glory giver or a glory thief. There is no middle ground. Fear God, give him glory. Thirdly, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, the God of all creation, the God who made everything that we see in the entirety of the cosmos. Worship him. And that's not just singing songs on a Sunday. That's part of it. But worship has to start in our hearts throughout the week or it's not authentic worship at all. It has to start in a life change, in a surrendering of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You live for him now, heart, body, mind, and soul. Worship is not worship if it does not first begin in your heart and is not reflected in your life. God wants all of you. Here's the gospel. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. The gospel isn't even believe that the cross was for you. The cross is important. Don't get me wrong. The cross, the empty tomb, absolutely essential to the gospel message. But it's not ultimately the gospel. The gospel is not ultimately believe the cross was for you. The gospel is enter into a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And that cross will be applied to your account. And that empty tomb will be applied to your account. You'll be covered by the sacrifice of Christ. You'll be covered by the eternal resurrection. But first and foremost, you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is to fear God and give him glory. That's the gospel. The gospel call goes to all. That's the first thing you must consider. The second thing you must consider, no enemies of God will escape judgment. No enemies of God will escape judgment. Verses eight through 11. We see here, all systems arrayed against God will crumble. That's verse eight. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Another angel, the second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. We do not have time to get into this, but we'll get into this when we get to chapter 17 and 18, probably in about three years. But chapter 17 and 18 deal with the fall of Babylon. Babylon has several components. There is an economic and political component and also a religious component. It is a worldwide system of government, economics, and evil, demonic worship of the Antichrist. All of that comes under the umbrella of Babylon, a future Babylon. I believe the Antichrist capital will be on the ancient site of Old Testament Babylon. It'll be a resurrected Babylon. That's where he will rule or attempt to rule this entire planet. And from there, world systems, government, economy, and demonic religion will be based. But as we see in chapter 17 and 18, Babylon's going to fall. All systems arrayed against God will crumble. And then verses 9 through 11, all individuals in rebellion against God will be damned. All individuals in rebellion against God will be damned. Please listen, 9 through 11. 
And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. By the way, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says, In ancient times, wine was mixed with water. That is true. But this is a special case. This is unmixed wine. Poured full strength is literally unmixed wine. No dilution. Full strength. And it's the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever sees the mark of its name. There will be many people out of sheer desperation in the time of the tribulation who declare loyalty and allegiance to Antichrist because they want bread for the next day. But in so doing, they will fully and finally turn their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ and cut themselves off from the gospel. And the only future that is left for these individuals who take the mark is damnation. Contrary to what some say, damnation is eternal. Hell is forever. It's appointed once for man once to die and then comes the judgment. This is not a comforting thought. No pastor or theologian who truly loves God rejoices in thinking long about hell. God says he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but it gives him glory because sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with either on the cross or in eternal judgment. The testimony of Scripture in both the Old Testament, the New Testament, and in the Gospels, Jesus Christ himself many times, is that eternal punishment is eternal conscious torment. The end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24, says they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's what's left for those who choose loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we are talking about the tribulation, friends, that's what's left for you if you die in your sins. I am sure that in a room this size, there's somebody here today who is still in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not bowed the knee to God, who has not feared God and given him glory, who is not committed to worshiping him. If you are persisting in unrepentant private sin that nobody else knows about but God, you need to tremble. Because unless you change and repent and turn, you have no hope of eternal life. And it's a very realistic possibility that what's waiting for you is this same type of eternal conscious torment. They have no rest, day or night. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. All people, all systems will, will not escape judgment. No enemies of God will escape judgment. Third thing you must consider. Third thing you must consider. Those who persevere to the end will receive rest. Verses 12 through 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints for those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. When God's people hear a call to persevere and press on, what happens in their heart is that the Holy Spirit working in their heart motivates them to say, Yes, I will do that. Yes, God secures you. Your destiny, Christian. If you're a genuine Christian, you will never fall away. God holds you in the palm of his hand. You will be brought safely into God's kingdom. And nothing can thwart that. But God keeps his people through their perseverance. God keeps his people through their spirit-empowered and undergirded perseverance. Your works don't save you. 
Your works don't save you. But here's what happens when a real Christian, a genuine Christian, hears a call to persevere to the end. They respond because of the Holy Spirit working inside them. They respond and they say, yes, Lord, I will stay faithful. Just like Peter said, just like Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't say that just in and of his own self. He said that because God had transformed him from the inside out. And so here we see a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is a call to the tribulation saints, those few who are left on earth during the time of the tribulation, stay faithful to Christ. And verse 13, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Even if you're martyred, even if you're killed, there is rest waiting for you. And while we are not in the tribulation yet, that same promise is for you. You may experience persecution or hardship. Faithfulness to Christ may cost you dearly, but there's rest waiting for you. This momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared for the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for you, Christian. Press on, persevere. Finally, finally, be sobered by the horrifying harvest of hardened enemies. Be encouraged by the victorious harvest. Be mindful of the divided harvest. Be sobered by the horrifying harvest. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have even postulated that the same white cloud is reminiscent of the cloud that engulfed Christ and the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. But clearly this is Christ. Daniel 7 shows us that one descends like one, like a son of man. And we see he has the crown. This is Jesus with a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This angel is not telling Jesus what to do. This angel, as some have stated, this angel is appealing to Jesus to do what is rightfully his. Just like Abraham said to God in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So this angel says to Christ, Lord, the time for your judgment has come. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. We see here, Christ will harvest the lives of his enemies. Christ will harvest the lives of his enemies. Jesus told us that this would happen. Jesus told us this would happen. Matthew 13, he's explaining the parable of the weeds. He says, Matthew 13, 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of the man will the son of man, excuse me, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom and cause all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Christ will harvest the lives of his enemies verses 14 through 16. And he'll be aided by his angels. We see that in verses 17 through 19. Christ's angels will help administer his deadly harvest of his enemies. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. This is the fulfillment of what we see in Joel 3.13. Joel 3 is a futuristic vision of all the nations gathered together in the valley of Armageddon. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
Joel 3 prophesies what we see described here in Revelation 14. All the nations of the earth gathered together in opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ in the valley of Armageddon, and they're killed. This leads us to our final point. Christ's harvest of his enemies will be successful, exhaustive, and bloody. Revelation 19, verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Remember we said chapters 12 through 14 is a depiction of an abridged recounting of the history of spiritual warfare beginning from when Satan was cast out of heaven and culminating in Jesus' victory in the, val- in the valley of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. How far is that? Approximately 200 miles. And it's not just a river, it's a radius. A radius of 200 miles, as high as a horse's bridle, the blood and the viscera of all the nations who have arrayed themselves in opposition against God will be literally crushed. Jacob prophesied this all the way back in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11. Speaking of Judah and the tribe of Judah, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. John Walvoord says this, the spurting of the grape juice from under the bare feet of those treading the grapes in the winepress is compared to the spurting of blood and it speaks of the awful human carnage that we see in Revelation chapter 19. What we'll look at when we get to chapter 19. Jesus will win. His enemies will be destroyed. Evil will be dealt with. There will be a harvest of the righteous and a harvest of the wicked. Where will you be? You know, in verse 10, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. That's the future of any individual who dies in opposition to God. He will drink the cup of God's wrath. But friends, Jesus drank that cup for all who come to him in repentance and faith. That same cup that is waiting for all of those who die in rebellion has already been dealt with if you would just run to Christ. If you would flee to Christ, you would find that that cup is empty. And the only thing left for you is forgiveness and peace. If you have not run to Christ today, do so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what we see here in Revelation 14. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives that seek to glorify you, to fear you, to glorify you, and to worship you. We thank you that you did drink the cup for all who come in repentance and faith. Help us to worship you now. Pray this in your name. Amen.